Thank you for joining us for our fifth and final soundbite of the Commuter Rail Coalition's conversation with USDOT's Director of Bipartisan Infrastructure Law Implementation, Katie Thompson. In this segment, the conversation is again led by CRC's Director of Government Affairs, John Klein senior member of Klein Strategic Consulting. The challenges presented include operations funding post-COVID relief, the difficult decisions commuter railroads are making related to balancing capital investment with current ridership, and long-term environmental considerations. Joining John and Katie in the discussion, we have Jim Derwinski, Metra CEO, AECOM's Sally Labrera, Metrolink CEO Darren Kettle, and Eric DeLeo, Senior Vice President of Capital Programs with New Jersey Transit. The last issue I would throw out, Katie, is that obviously we have experienced some fairly significant changes in our service and ridership as a result of COVID. And that has begun to shift travel patterns potentially permanently, maybe short term. And uh, so again, you know, unlike a lot of other modes of transportation, we may be looking at changes in the way we provide service, the levels of service, time of day travel has shifted on us as well. So it's a bit of a moving target. We still have traditional ridership, but we do need to capture what appears to be some shifting demographics, like I said, at least for the short term, maybe for the long term. And that could result in equipment needs and other infrastructure investments. So I think in the category of trying to justify a reason for further investments in commuter rail, we certainly think that the reasoning is there for it. We provide a great connection to affordable housing for people who cannot afford the immediate inner city housing. And so it's a safe, fast transportation for people who are seeking to have a little bit a more reasonable housing price. And so we we think that that's an important role that we're going to continue to play, really, no matter what the work from home issues, work in the office issues ultimately turn into. Yeah, thank you. And that doesn't come as a surprise. I guess my question for you is, how can DOT be most helpful in that regard? Like what, what you're experiencing is probably particularly acute, but we're seeing it across most modes of transportation and thinking about how do we responsibly, you know, kind of help manage these issues going forward? Well, I'll start off just by, I know all the transit agencies echo my sentiment here, but without the federal relief money for operations, we wouldn't be sitting here today even talking about ridership recovery. We would have had to collapse expenses down to the point where it's like a novelty. Um, it's not the convenience. We're not pulling cars off the road. We're not providing the, the carbon footprint reduction. So without that money, we wouldn't be here. And certainly some of these bigger systems, it's a large dollar ask. So how could DOT be helpful? I mean, I mean, I guess keeping the conversation going because we haven't found that solution yet. We're not at the point where we can sit there and say we're standing on our own. We all have different funding formulas when it comes to operation, and that's another unique set of circumstances. So I guess just keeping the conversation going and then maybe even starting to put some markers in the sand out there that uh, really are going to start raising up the, that flag of um, operating dollars starting to dwindle because you're only other. I used to always say there's only two levers we can pull. We can either raise the price of the fares or we can reduce the expense by reducing service. And, you know, neither one of those probably are attracting more riders. I'm Darren Kettle. I'm the chief executive officer of Metrolink in Southern California. 
I'll somewhat echo Jim Derwinski's remarks. He's spot on with this. I'm also going to provide a little bit of a data point just because we have some pretty reliable new information. In May of 2018, Metrolink had done a survey of our all of our riders, and we had a little over 70% of our riders were traditional workers, meaning working in an office four to five days a week, and they would always buy a monthly pass. They were easy money. We didn't have to work hard for them. The service sold itself. Of May of 22, where we are seeing a much lower base, so you'll again, you'll remember 70% of a fairly decent ridership in 2018 to where we are today, we're at 32% of our regular riders are traditional commuters four and five days a week on a base that is about 60 to 70% lower. So what that translates to is, as Jim said, it's either fares that are revenues, um, which are a big part of where we are in Southern California, or it's going to be where do we reduce expenses? And that's becoming really, really difficult. Again, Jim was right on. We've been able to really paper over this entire problem for two and a half years, thanks to having the COVID relief money. We, we had monopoly money. It was not something where anybody felt the pain. We cut services because it was the smart thing to do. Why do you put as much service out there when people aren't going to work? We've brought some of our service back. We brought back two-thirds of the service we cut. We are not going to be able to, I believe, bring back the last third because we're simply not getting to the ridership forecasts that we kind of all thought might happen. And at this point, I've heard Jim say it. I've heard Mike talk about it. Anybody that gives you a ridership forecast for commuter rail and says that it's 100% reliable is seriously smoking something. It is not a realistic opportunity to be able to identify that. So... In Southern California, we're going to be looking at some of those things. And again, the point here is it was the fact that COVID relief money did support operations for public transit and specifically commuter rail. And how we get to the point where there is some appetite that can come out of USDOT to say operations for regional rail is a valid use of federal funds, I think is something that will allow us to continue to operate. I have been telling my board given the nature of our funding structure, which is different than probably just because we're all different throughout the country. Our 31 railroads are all different. And I've been telling our board that this is an existential crisis for us. And so if we don't, whether it comes from the federal level or we get support out of of California for operations, we aren't going to do all those things that John Klein mentioned about how we want to be serving more than the commuters of the country. We need to be serving regional rail of this country, regional passenger service of this country at regional levels beyond inner city, which Amtrak does, but actually looking at these major metros and having real solid regional rail. So I'll get off my soapbox. Thanks, Jim, for teeing it up, though. If I could just add on to that, Sally Libera from AACOM, I think I, I certainly you know echo everything that that we just heard. The the one piece that I think would be helpful would be to be thinking about these things and to making decisions well in advance of the current COVID relief funds running out, um, so that we don't see behavior where agencies start to pull back on some of their capital plans because they're uncertain about those recovery funds. I'd only say it's too late in Southern California. Mm. Unfortunately, those relief funds are depleted. We have one county in our five county system that still has some relief funding available to send to regional rail, but across the board, the other four most populous counties um, have, have been tapped out. I think even in cases where funding still exists, 
if, if agencies are starting to think through what happens in 18 months or 24 months when that funding stops, it may be impacting some of their capital planning decisions now and into the next year. So, you know, I, again, I know these are very difficult issues and it's certainly very difficult to advance the, those sorts of, of, of very contentious uh, questions. Um, but if there's any opportunity to do so, I do think it'll make the period of time, even now when folks do have avail available funds for those agencies that still do, um, I think they'll be making more productive use of those funds. I just have a thought, Katie, just something I've said a long time ago. You know, commuter was green before green was invented. We're pulling 300 to 1,500 cars off the road every time we roll a train. But trains are expensive to run. So it's not having the foresight to see this in the future. Maybe the other agency we, we want to, uh, you know, talk to here is the EPA. But if we're heading in a direction and we want to try to do the right thing, if you do not invest in this type of system and these networks, you're literally walking in the wrong direction. You can EV everybody to death, but you know Southern California, your two-hour commute will become four-hour commute in your EV. That may help the environment, but it certainly doesn't do what we can do, which is get the cars off the road. And we're close. I believe we're within a few years of getting electric push-pull vehicles where, where we have the awesome infrastructure in Indiana. We have one line in Chicago and certainly New York, New Jersey, where they already are electrified. It's a huge investment and a little bit now going in Northern California. But in the interim, we believe that solutions are going to come out there that are going to take us and reduce our emissions footprint even greater. So every time we fill a train up, we are really helping out. That's just another place. If we don't invest now, we can't help anymore. There are a lot of issues, obviously, that as commuter rail agencies that we, that we that we share, but just the immense gratitude to USDOT and to the FTA and FRA specifically. I mean, we've been seeing NOFAs sort of flying off the shelf with these opportunities, formula fund tables, timely published, and just, just immense gratitude for all the technical assistance that I, I know NG Transit has been receiving. I'm sure the other agencies just can echo, you know, you've been dealt a lot of a lot of hands in this card game, right, with a lot of pressure to administer very quickly these programs and just want to compliment you. I mean, there are areas we want to work with you on, you know, and Kellyanne and the other speakers have highlighted them, but, but just immense gratitude for the work that you're doing. Thank you for saying that, Eric. Probably not said enough, even though we can start a conversation with it and end it. You really do have our deepest appreciation for, for all of this. I will say thank you very much for that. But I also don't think you were coming down <laughs> too strong. I mean, these are real problems. I always uh, try to be positive and say these are opportunities and we can figure out how to solve them together. But that's really our focus here. We, we have a five-year bill. Obviously, you know, to my mind, success begets success. So if we show some really positive outcomes with the investments we make over the next five years, we can hopefully spin the flywheel and persuade Congress to make adjustments as necessary, but continue to fund us at the levels that we need to be funded. And the other thing I would say is we need, and several of you mentioned this, we need to address the acute problems while we're addressing the strategic problems. I find it's very common for all of us to deal with the issue of the day that's right in front of you and, you know, burning down the house. But we've got to really do both and build in the flexibility into our systems to sort of flex up and down. And, and I think, that, you know, the points that you were making on the, the last one about the sort of existential challenges for commuter rail, 
start to think more about a well-connected transportation system that you know you talks about how how you bring the pieces together and provide greater options for people to connect through the system people or in some cases freight but better connect through the system as opposed to continuing to look at these operations in a siloed approach, which is what DOT has traditionally done, because that's the way that Congress has traditionally funded us. So I think it's more than past time to challenge old assumptions and advocate for a paradigm shift that better meets the needs of the country today and well into the future. And Jim, your point about cars, I think example for me that is particularly painful, I grew up loving trains. And in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, everybody wanted to have their own car and the, the flexibility and sort of the data symbol. And we stopped investing what we should have been investing in rail. And so now we're doing a lot of catch up. But shame on all of us if we allow that to continue. So I, I love to hear where you have challenges, but I really look forward to opportunities to talk to you about where there are opportunities to drive positive change in the future and what's the roadmap to get us from where we are to where we want to be and then talk about how do we collectively advocate for the system that we all want. I know everybody on the call really appreciates the time you gave us today. So thank you again. My pleasure. Really. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us for this Commuter Rail Coalition Soundbite series with Katie Thompson, USDOT's Director of Bipartisan Infrastructure Law Implementation. We look forward to bringing you future segments addressing news and updates as we continue to tackle both the challenges and opportunities facing our nation's commuter railroads. 